Hi, my name is Logan Walker with the Walk of Life podcast, where I interview people, break down their lives, and get to know what they know. Welcome, Aragon Markwell. Uh, he is a, was a missionary in Russia and a graduate student at a Bible college, is currently a contractor and a pastor at First Baptist. Welcome. How are you doing today? Good, good. Thanks for having me. So, yeah, I, uh, I pastor the church as well as uh, I'm kind of the chief maintenance guy and uh, uh, official janitor at times and <laughs> whatnot. So, kind of do all the little things behind oh, yeah. the scene that yeah. nobody really sees. That's, just, that's yeah. pretty cool, you know? That's something, yeah. something special as it is. So, we've been here for now, let me see, moved here in 2011. So, yeah, we're... We're kind of getting settled into the area. Um, when I first came here, my oldest, Josiah, was in sixth grade. And uh, now he's 23 and married. Well, I'm going to get married here shortly. And so, so yeah, we've gotten settled into the area. Yeah, that's good to hear. Um, so 10 years here. And mm-hmm. what, what was like, what, what made you want to come here? You know, this is uh, kind of strange. So when I was in graduate school in Tacoma, we would occasionally come down to go to Long Beach to get away. And uh, I remember sometime along that period that we drove through South Bend and Raymond. I thought, you know, this would be a kind of a cool little town to live in. It seems seems out of the way and it seems rural and, and whatnot. And that was just kind of in the back of my mind. And then we went to Russia for three years and uh, worked as missionaries uh, and then came home. And we our home base was Eatonville uh, up by Mount Rainier. Okay. And we went on vacation again. Uh, Melinda, my wife's parents, came out and watched the kids. So we ran down to Long Beach. And on the way down here, I noticed a white church on the left-hand side as we came down 101. It's no longer white. It's, uh, it's a grayish uh, color. But uh, anyways, on the, uh, on the way back, I just kind of pulled over and I noticed on the reader board that they had the phrase interim pastor and so-and-so. Somebody else was preaching. I thought, hmm, that's interesting. They've got an interim. I wonder if they're looking for a full-time guy. So I just called the church and said, hey, are you guys accepting resumes? Uh, And uh, they said, well, uh, we were thinking about doing that here shortly. And uh, I said, well, do you want to have mine? And so I sent it on in and... uh, over the course of mm, several months, coming down and visiting and preaching for them, they said, well, come on down. So so there you go. I don't know if that's a good methodology for finding a job, but that, uh, hey, driving you know, around and just uh, calling random people. <laughs> that's about the best way you can do it. You just got to put yourself yeah. out there, you know, offer yeah. up your resume where you can. Yeah. So that's... that's uh, so the first question sure. that I, uh, I ask everybody who comes on sure. um, is... What do you want your legacy to be? That's kind of my staple. Um, like yeah. after you pass, like how do you want to be remembered? Yeah. Um, I guess, uh, number one, I would like to be remembered as a man of conviction. And number two, and, and not number two as in importance, but just uh, a guy who loved God and, uh, and, you know, was committed to his faith. So, um, you know, that, those are the, probably the primary things that are, that drive me so right yeah that's good to hear because I'm, I'm a christian as well okay right and on. uh i was 
So my first year of college, I mm-hmm. took um, a philosophy class. Interesting. And it and it really shook me up. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't know what to believe at that point, and so my professor was really good. Mm-hmm. He he didn't persuade you in any way, but he was you know we were learning so much at that time. Mm-hmm. And so after the class, I was like, wow, like I don't know. Yeah. And then I went to college, and I'm, my best friend was a good-hearted Christian, great guy. <clears throat> and we used to do these things called Sunday drives, mm-hmm. and we would just go for a drive, and we were just looking around. It was our first one we did together. And I, we, he's seen this river, the Missouri River running across, and there's a bridge that came across Okay, it. So, so where do you go to school at? Uh, Missouri Valley College. Okay, okay. And like an hour east of Kansas City. Okay. And uh, so we were driving across it, and he goes, dude, I love bridges, pull over. I was like, Okay, cool. <laughs> so we pulled over, and we, like, walked out on this bridge, like, on a main highway. We just walked out, and he's, like, it was, like, right as the sun was setting, like, hitting uh-huh. the water. And he looks at me and says, there's no way that's a coincidence. Yeah. You know? There's no way all that yeah. fell in place. And I was, like, you know, it's just snapped for yeah. me right then and there. And I was, like, wow. You, you know, people who have a philosophy of, you know, atheistic materialism, um, you know, guys like Richard Dawkins, even when they are speaking about the the world, they can't help but use the language of design and creation and uh, order. And whenever you use terminology like that, these are verbs that require a subject. You know, things don't design themselves. You have designers. Right. And it is just so incomprehensible that you can look at the the magnitude of the diversity of any biological system and the ecosystem with all, multiple biological systems interacting with each other and say, yeah, that was a chance. Yeah, that was just a, you know, that was a, a rock bumping into another rock and lo and behold, you know, here we go. We've got, we have all this tremendously complicated life on earth. No, no, that's just, that is... That is not a blind faith. That's that's a degree of credulity. That it's just an impo- it, it is unfathomable to right. embrace that. So um, yeah. And then where yeah. do the rocks come from? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. How do things come to life yeah. in non-living matter? Uh, but uh, but yeah, no. The, the the fact that the world around us is so well designed and 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 we have the ability to perceive beauty. It's just. It's like going through an art gallery. Right. When you look at the things on the wall and you say, "Well, how did all that paint come to order and you know fall into the canvas?" And just no, no, that's that's foolishness. Mm-hmm. There's an artist who designed all this, and it's beautiful, and we can tell. So, yeah, I, I couldn't put it better myself. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, where did you grow up, and uh, so how did your parents kind of raise you? Okay, so I was born in '74, so I'm a Gen Xer. Uh, grew up in Eatonville. Uh, my mom and biological father were both authentic hippies. Uh, my mom was a high school dropout. Dad was a Vietnam vet. Uh, mom had a VW van, uh, was traveling around eastern Washington picking fruit. And, uh, you know, just, I mean, yeah, it was, it was pretty wild. And they met each other and then uh, produced me. <laughs> Um, unfortunately, they got a divorce when I was about a year and a half, so I didn't really know my biological father until I was 17 years old. Uh, my mother 
uh, remarried uh, to my stepdad, uh, a, a guy uh, from from Olympia area. Uh, they got a divorce when I was 11, so uh, kind of a critical time in my life. 11 years old, growing up, and you know, going through a divorce that was traumatic. Um, but so so, you said that was traumatic. Was how did that like affect you? Like as a going into your teens having a divorce happen in your life it was uh it was very unsettling to say the least i mean at that age at that age the structure that a mom and dad provide right. i mean it's everything it was everything and it just it rocked my world and i was uh significantly impacted by that uh, significantly impacted by that, and then um, coincidentally, in my high school years and whatnot, I, I really floundered. So, um, I became a Christian when I was 11 years old. My mother put me in a private school for academic reasons, because, you know, it was it's kind of weird. When I first started going to school, I remember in in first and second grade thinking that. Uh, homework was kind of an optional thing. Like, if you wanted to do it, you could. And, and I just felt like, well, I go to school during the day, and no, wait a minute, you, you're telling me I have to take this home and work in it? No, that I do school at school, and no, this is my time. And so right. I kind of maintained that little attitude when I was a kid uh, and did very poorly. And I remember in fourth grade, I was just really lagging behind. So my mom, for academic reasons, uh, being coaxed by my aunt, put me into this private school, but it happened to be a Christian school. And in that Christian school, I was just exposed to the gospel. I was exposed. Uh, we would They would have a Bible lesson time at the beginning of every class or every day, and uh, they just presented the gospel, and it, it, was, it had a profound effect on me. I was... Um, my mother was afraid that I would grow up to be a preacher, she thought, oh, no, not one of those. Because I was harassing her. I said, you know, we need to go to church, Mom. We need to do this. And that was right about the time they got a divorce. Um, that school went to, to, to sixth grade. Then I went back to a public uh, school. And in that period of time, I just thought, you know what? I, I was so insecure. I, I thought to myself, I, I'm going to this new environment. I don't have any friends. Man, I just I I can't live for God right now. I need to go out and I need to I need to find friends. I need to get my feet underneath me, and uh, you know I'll do the God thing later. It was kind of a conscious decision I made at seventh grade. Um, that didn't work out so well. Uh, I was uh, especially in high school. I was floundering uh, really bad. Uh, in fact, I never graduated high school. I ended up getting my GED. Really? Yep. So, uh, middle of my junior year, I had decided that all the classes I were taking, I was taking, were kind of dumb. Which, no, yeah, they probably were. Uh, I liked woodshop. I would go to woodshop in the morning, but then after that, I would just uh, take off and do whatever I just wanted to do. Go home and actually, we would. Uh, this buddy of mine, we would go to his house, and he had a Ford LTD, really loud. His mom was at home, but we would roll it down the road a little bit, uh, you know, a block away, and then start up. <laughs> they go to the Tacoma Mall and hang out for the yeah. day, and, <laughs> uh, and just just kind of mess around. And then, you know, doing that for a month, a couple months, uh, my uh, the the principal invited me not to come back to school any longer. So, I said, "Well, fine." 
but I'm out of here. So I, I had a job working at a local dairy farm, and I was milking cows and going nowhere with my life, and I knew it, and it drove me nuts. Was there like a moment in time where you're like, I got I to gotta change like right now? Yeah, I don't remember which day it was, but uh, I was milking cows at night, and it was about a 10-hour shift, and I thought, my goodness, this is this is pretty crappy. I don't want to do this forever. Yeah. And I, so basically I swallowed my pride and I went back to school, uh, the second part of my senior year. And there was a teacher there by the name of Dennis Clevenger. Great man. He's one of these guys that, um, he just commanded authority without using any, any force. He, he, he dressed a little bit you know, he had the pocket protector, and he always had the short, short sleeve shirt uh, and collar. I mean, he dressed professional, but kind of. Well, he probably won't be listening to this, but uh, he was—he looked kind of nerdy, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> but he had such a passion for teaching that if anybody was screwing around in his class, he'd just stop talking, and suddenly this hush would come over all the students, and they were just like, "Oh, sorry," and. Uh, and and he would teach, but he also happened to be a Christian. And he had a rule that he said that anybody who gets three tardies in my class gives me 30 minutes after class. So, of course, I got three tardies. And uh, as I was giving him 30 minutes, he told me, or yeah, he started asking me questions. He said, you know, I, I talked to a lot of the teachers, and they say you're kind of a handful. And But, you know, I don't see that in my class here. And, and I just told him, I, you know, well, you know, I'm, yeah, I guess I'm kind of rebellious, but I'm just looking for something. I'm looking for meaning. And I, and I was. I was really looking for why am I here? It, you know, I, think, I don't think anything has changed between when I was a kid and today. People wonder who they are, why they're here, I mean, where did I come from, and what ultimately is at the end of this life? What's mm. on the other side of the finish line? Those are some really big, important questions. <laughs> I wrestled with them when I was 17. I think people wrestle with it now. I think the whole movement with, uh, with identity and, you know, especially the LGBT movement, it's, it's, it's trying to answer the same question that mm-hmm. I was asking, you know, who am I and what, you know, what am I and where did I come from? So anyways, he, uh, he as a public school uh, teacher, off hours, he said, you know, why don't you come to church with me? Why don't you come some Sunday? Check it out. Well, I'm a bad kid. Right. <laughs> I, I can't do that. I'm, I am, uh, I'm the dropout kid. Uh, you know, vandalism, hooligan kind of. Uh, no, I, I'm not the church kind. And uh, three weeks went by, and one morning I just kind of hopped in my old Ford pickup truck and thought, well, I'll go check it out. I'll go check it out. And uh, when I went to church there. Uh, at the Baptist Church in Eatonville, I remember walking through the door, realizing it was just this uh, real, it was a surreal experience that I, it was as though I had said to God in seventh grade, I'll catch you later. And then all those years later, I went back to church and he's like, well, I'm here. I've been waiting. <laughs> like, we'll go home. Yeah. Yeah. And it was just like the, the parable of the prodigal son. So uh, that was that was really quite a bit. I had never gone to church. So I'm a pastor. I'm a Baptist pastor. But I had never gone to church one time from all my growing up years until I was 19. So That is crazy. And it was like, <clears throat> pretty much after that, 19, it was like, 
Every weekend. Well, so yeah, every weekend. And then very shortly, it was kind of weird. There was a youth group. I started going to youth group. We had all of these kids in there that were, you know, 4.0 honor roll students. And then here I'm the, I'm the, the dropout uh, kid. And I just did not fit in very well at all. But my youth pastor said, you know, I think you need to go to Bible college. And I said, I don't think I need to go to Bible college. <laughs> School and I were not on talk, good talking terms. And I just, yeah, no, thank you. And I, and I shot him down. And uh, I was going to do my own thing. Actually, I decided I, decided I want to be a, a rancher. Okay. So my plan was is that I was going to, first of all, go to a horseshoeing school, and I did that. I actually uh, shoot horses for a while. And then I was going to go to a herdsman school and then maybe get some automotive and, you know, uh, construction experience. And I wanted to be a rancher. I wanted to go to Montana and be a rancher. So did you kind of map this out in your mind, or did you yeah. write it down? And so you had a big plan out, mm -hmm. and you were ready to go? Yep. And moved to Montana? Yeah, that was my goal. That's what I wanted to do. And I had uh, I went down to Oklahoma to do the horse swimming school. It was a six week class. I had I had hopped on a bus uh, and rode across cross country in a Greyhound, which is an experience I don't encourage anyone to duplicate. <laughs> um, but did that. Came back. Started started my business. I was going to be a horseshoer, but I was miserable. I was just I was I, I was I was depressed, and I didn't understand why. I was just so. I don't know, it just felt so a lack of peace. Finally, one day I, I picked up the phone and I called him and I said, well, I'll go to Bible college for a year if you want. If, if, yeah, I'll do that. And it, it was like this sudden peace, like, oh, it was like on a stifling hot day, a cold breeze coming in. Right. And I just felt this amazing peace uh, come over me. So... The school I had planned to go to in Montana, it was too late, so there was another one in upstate New York. So he and a bunch of other people in the church, in a course of two weeks time period, got a plane ticket, you know, went shopping to buy clothes and all this stuff, and before I knew it, I was flying to upstate New York wow. to go to Bible college. What, what a change, and how did, how did that affect you just up and, you know, first of all, yeah, getting your G&D and then just... Moving out on your own, all mm -hmm. you know, to Montana, and then all of a sudden you're like, eh, this ain't right. Is. Yeah. How how did that kind of affect you in in your well? It was mind? very unsettling because so so I grew up in an era where there were no cell phones, there's no internet. In fact, that first year of Bible college, I remember people talking about email, and I thought, what what's the point of that? <laughs> I mean, why why email? You just write a letter and you stick it in the mail. What what? Why I have to have a computer to read a letter? I thought it was just it didn't make sense. Uh, so there was no calling home and, you know, Hey, or can I send you an email or I was just, it was very secluded. And I got into New York and then New York is a very different place than the West coast. The East coast is very different mm. culturally. I got in at three o'clock in the morning and then I, you know, I, I got settled in my bunk and there was a, there was a, an assembly the next morning. I had taken the wrong route, and I came in late, and, and I, I got in there, and they were singing a, a Bible song, and it was kind of goofy and had motions, and I thought, oh my goodness, I am in a cult in upstate New York, and Washington is on the other side of the country, and I was just, I was freaking out a little bit. Uh, <laughs> 
it wasn't actually a cult, but it was just, it was some real culture shock, significant. Right. And so I didn't grow up in the Christian home. And so I was quite a bit different than a lot of the kids who came from the, you know, the, the nurturing, loving Christian home, grew up in church thing. And I was a little bit different, um, but, um, but I was where I needed to be. And I was going to do one year of Bible college, then come back and I was going to be the rancher again. That's what I wanted to do. I had an opportunity to do open area evangelism in Boston. And uh, wh- what we would do is, I've, you've probably seen street preachers who would get up there and yell at people and blah, blah, you know, repent. Yeah. It's not very <laughs> effective, honestly. Right. So what we had is a, a paint board. We'd begin painting a picture and we would use block letters, which the, the block letter system, you just put in a little dash of paint here and there and suddenly a word appears. So we would begin painting and people would kind of slow down and say, well, what's he drawing here? And midway through, you'd just stop and introduce yourself and say, hey, you know, I'd like to tell you about my painting here. And basically, I'm a Christian. And what, what I want to talk about two people here about on my painting. And you would say the first one, you know very well, and that's you. And then there's God. And, um, and basically, you'd share the gospel um, in a very, in a very, um, open, not condemnation type of harassing way, but just, um, just to share. And I, I did that the first time I did it, I, I was getting all ready and I was standing at the board and then I turned around cause I was about ready to start and there was like 80 people there. I mean, I don't know where all these people came from and I went through it and it just felt like this is it. I knew at that moment that God wanted me to tell people about him forever for the rest of my life. That was like the the, the moment right then and there. Yeah. And when you had those 80 people, was it like an overwhelming feeling? Was yeah, it like a, Yeah, it was kind of overwhelming, but it was also dread. It was, you know, I didn't want to be a I don't want to do the pastor thing. So you were still kind of fighting that feeling. Well, I was fighting of, it, but then I remembered how depressed I was when I came back from the horseshoeing school and was going to do my own thing, and I just was, oh, God, God is so strong. I don't want to wrestle with him anymore. Yeah. And I was like, well, okay, God, I'll do this. All right, we'll do it. And, you know, I had no clue as to what to do or where to go or what. I, I was, yeah. But um, I met my wife there. And I ended up finishing up my bachelor's degree in West Virginia. As though New York was not enough of a culture shock when you go to West Virginia. It's like, whoa, it's really different down yeah, here. Yeah, so you pretty much traveled all the way around the country. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, uh, in terms of states I've lived in, I, so here in Washington, of course, did a year in New York, did three years in West Virginia, did a year in Michigan, did um, almost a year in South Carolina studying Russian. Uh, and then I lived in Russia uh, for three years, Ukraine for three months. Um, and then I've visited, um, I've, I've been throughout uh, Europe, uh, went to Brazil uh, one time on a mission trip. I uh, had a chance to go visit uh, Togo, West Africa, um, and had a chance to go to Israel twice, which was probably the highlight of my travels. Yeah, I'm going to say that's probably like <laughs> yeah. the dream. <laughs> it is, it is. I recommend anybody who is... A Christian, uh, it is such a good thing to do and to go and to see. And it's, I'm just blown away at how many things you can go and actually look at and see that have biblical significance. Caiaphas, the high priest, they have his ossuary, which is like a little, a little stone box that has his bones in it. 
Really? Yeah. So they, they, they have that in the in the museum there in in Jerusalem. I mean, you could see these things like, wow, that's pretty wild. They've got Herod's coffin that they've unearthed. Herod, Herod the Great, who tried to kill Jesus as a baby. Yeah, they, they have. I mean, it, it's just the place is so full of history everywhere. Is it like a museum, more of? Or is it like a well, functioning um, town, city? A, a lot of these artifacts and whatnot you're going to find in the museum, but you can walk around uh, in the old city of Jerusalem. And this is where Jesus walked. He walked on these stones. Uh, you, you can, I, I went through Hezekiah's tunnel. So in, in about the year 70 BC, Hezekiah, the king of Israel, uh, or king of Judah, uh, is being invaded by the Assyrian army. And so he fortifies the wall around the city and he, and he digs a tunnel down to, to a spring and, uh, it was done in haste, and they, I mean, you can actually go there and walk through this tunnel that was dug out by pick, and presumably uh, by, uh, by torch light, and it's like, this is right here, Seven, 700 BC, this is when they dug this out, and it's just, it, it blows you away. What, what kind of feeling do you get when you're in there? You, actually, so... I'd, I've studied a lot about the Bible. I've studied a lot about history. But when you, every square foot of Israel, and especially Jerusalem, there is millennia of history there. You've got the walls, the current walls around the old part of the city, which were built by Saladin. I, th- I can't remember the year, but that was sort of the Middle Ages. Uh, you, you've got bigger stones, I mean, large stones that were set there by Herod the Great. Um, in fact, if you go to the underground tour of the Temple Mount, there are stones there that are so large and so massive that we have no idea how they quarried them out and moved them there. And just with the craftsmanship, is just superb. It's amazing. Really? Yeah. Uh, I put so that you, on my bucket list now. <laughs> yeah. You've got that, and then you and then you can go to another part. And well, okay, here's where Hezekiah's wall was at, and you know they've unearthed part of that, and so that goes back another 700 years. I mean, it's just, it, it becomes, it's like trying to listen to seven or eight different people at the same time. He's got all these voices, because every square foot of ground over there has layers upon layers of history. It's unbelievable. pretty wild. It's pretty wild. So what was the, the first country you, so you got your bachelor's in West Virginia. Yes, got my bachelor's in West Virginia. Entered the missionary. Where, where, was, that, where was the first place? Okay, so uh, as soon as I finished uh, getting my bachelor's, I, at that point I kind of thought God wanted me to be a pastor. But I should probably go overseas and, you know, be exposed to the whole mission arena. So I knew a guy who was taking a trip over to to Odessa, Ukraine, and, and then into Kishinev, Moldova. So that was my first uh, overseas um, adventure. Uh, and uh, it, was, it was unique. It was back, let's see, that was back in 98. So um, there was still, I mean, the, the, the Soviet Union fell apart in the late 80s, but um, it was still fairly 
backward and whatnot. So uh, it was an experience going through all the different security and the and the requirements for uh, special taxation to get through uh, here and there. A lot of a lot of bribery and whatnot. Uh, <laughs> but um, it was it was amazing. It was it was pretty it was pretty awesome. And your your wife went with you. Actually, she did not go with me that time because that was a short two week trip, and uh, we were. Uh, well, it was expensive, so we were trying to save a few bucks, and she went home to spend some time with uh, with parents while um, while I was over there. So that was my first my first overseas adventure. Um, came back from there, then moved back to Tacoma. Uh, started doing uh, seminary. Uh, after seminary, I went back to teach a a short unit. Uh, a, um, a class on hermeneutics, the science and art of interpretation of, of biblical text, but all but all writing. Uh, did that in Kishinev, Moldova, and uh, just thought, you know what, I I really like I like the international scene. I like going overseas, and I liked I really liked Eastern Europe, and so kind of thought, well, maybe 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 I should be a missionary, and so. Um, that planted the seed in our head. So uh, we didn't know where at first. We we thought maybe well, I don't know. There were a lot of people at um, at ABWE, which is the group we went with. That there were a lot of people there that had done missions in Africa. And we thought, well, maybe Africa. I don't know. Maybe. And we went there, and Togo, West Africa, was yeah. That's a difficult place to do ministry. Really? Wasn't yeah. Not a lot of Christians there? Well, there's a, there's a fair amount of Christians, but it is like camping continuously. It's, um, it's um, heat, bugs, um, snakes, um, and just devastating poverty like you can't imagine. Uh, there and it was it's, it would be a, it's a challenging place. I mean, sometimes you can stretch a rubber band so far, but eventually it'll break. And it was it was a very I, I, I think we would have struggled being there because it's it's tough. Um, how long were you? Did you go? How long were you there? We for? we just went there for a, a quick two week trip to visit, and uh, the the mission group that we were with, they had a hospital there and uh, basically a blind center for kids who were born blind. They would teach them how to, you know, make baskets and do various trades to try to try to uh, to survive. But um, but yeah, no, it was it was an interesting place. I I was preaching one evening, and there was a um, there they have these termite mounds that are, you know, huge. It's huge, yeah. And uh, I'm preaching, and all of a sudden, just 10 billion flying termites descended onto the church, and they're everywhere, and they're they're crawling on me and on my Bible. And every, all the Africans are like, yeah, just yeah, keep on going. And it was... <laughs> it, it was... Uh, it took me a little bit of a, a focus to... to to keep on preaching when I'm preaching here and, you know, wipe off the bugs as they're landing on me. <laughs> I guess that kind of informs, you know, a great deal of discipline. And Yes, it, uh, it helps you uh, maintain your train of thought. Uh, I, I, speaking through a translator is a skill you have, to, you have to remember to speak in complete thought units so then wait for them. But as you're waiting and you're listening to them, when they stop talking, that means you need to talk again. And if you're focusing too much on what they're saying, 
then you're going to forget what you're going to say. So speaking through a translator was interesting. There was one place where uh, in Togo, uh, up, up further north, we had, I had to speak through two translators. So I spoke English. Um, French is the official language there. Uh, you translate into French. And then there were about 40 different tribal languages in that country. Holy country of 5 million, but 40 different tribal languages. And then... You know, the third translator would take the French and translate that into, uh, I think that was uh, Eve or Cabier. I can't remember which language. But, yeah, so that's really, I wonder, you know, I wonder how much of my actual words got through there. <laughs> so moving back here and mm -hmm. preaching here was like a breeze, huh? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Boy, no kidding. Although, after, when I was living in Russia for three years, I didn't preach in English at all. Um, I did preach in Russian a couple different times. I think they were pretty simplistic messages, but uh, my language wasn't quite to the level where I could pontificate very well. Mm. But uh, coming back here, uh, at times I found like, wait, what is the word? How do you, and it was, your brain begins to shift and forget things uh, when you don't use, I mean, we don't use English all the time. Right. Uh, yeah, no, it was... So, you know, I got a few cobwebs in my brain for, for the English dissection. I'm like, gee whiz. I, uh, I'm probably other people don't have that kind of an issue. You know, they've got good linguistic minds. But I've got about room in my head for 1.5 languages. So that's about <laughs> yeah. it. So. Um, so in Russia, you mm -hmm. had your first kid? No, actually, so we had all three of our children before we went to Russia. Um, my oldest is 23, and my youngest is 17. We moved there in 2007, and we stayed till 2010. So uh, my oldest, Josiah, he was in second grade. Uh, we homeschooled him, but I also stuck him in a, a Russian school just to, just to be around other Russian kids and to learn the language. He got to the point where he could understand Russian uh, probably better than I could. Mm. Now, I could say more because I'd studied vocabulary, but he, he was very, you know, he, and, he, and he did great there. He was, he, he really uh, adjusted well, actually was kind of, he was kind of stressed and, you know, sad to leave. Uh, really? Because I was home. That was, yeah, that was that's home. all I knew at that yeah. point. Yeah. My middle, uh, she, she was speaking Russian without an accent. Uh, she was, she was five when we moved there. Uh, and, uh, you know, we would have people come to the door and, you know, maintenance men or whatever in the apartment complex where we lived and knock on the door and try to explain something to Melinda and, and Melinda, uh, I don't know what he's saying. And, and Lathia would come and say, well, mommy, he said this. And, yeah, she was trained. Well, thank you, dear. <laughs> That's kind of cool. That's how good their schools were. It must have been. Well, um, well, it's it's more of well, they do have good schools. They do have good schools. In fact, all the schools there, when they begin a second language, it's in like second, first, second grade, which is when you should start to learn a language because your brain is naturally wired to just through osmosis take in a language and learn to speak it. Uh, up until I forget what the age is, seven or eight, and you know you just kind of absorb it. Right. After that point, you have to learn a language via grammar, and you know that's how I learned it. Which it sticks with you longer. I can still speak Russian, you know, I've, and I still remember a lot of the rules, and you know you do this because of this and whatnot. They learned it simply by well, this is just how you say it. Right. Uh, so, but they forgot it quicker. So. 
So so when you when you do look at the schools mm-hmm. and how was the difference from here to there? Well, the, the schools there, um, the educational system was, I think, superior. The funding was incredibly inferior. I mean, they lived, they did school in buildings that we would have condemned here. Um, you know, they're just. Uh, but the quality of education is not determined by your facilities. Absolutely. Uh, that is uh, something we've forgotten. Secondly, I've, I've, I noticed that their objective is not to... Well, I'll, I'll, use, I'll use this as an illustration. You go to a playground here. Now, all the good toys, when the Gen Xers like myself were growing up, all, they're all gone. We don't have totter, teeter-totters. We don't have the the spinny thing that would throw the kids off, you know. That would, uh, I mean, we don't have hardly any swings anymore. We have, we have safe, safe uh, playground equipment, which is usually pretty boring. Over there, uh, in our, we, so we lived in a large building that had a, on a playground in front of it. The equipment there looked like it was for a military training boot camp scenario. I mean, they, they had this... Like this, a big obstacle course. Yes, there was, and I was, I, this one big cube thing, I think it went up probably about 20 feet in the air. And I thought, if a kid falls off that, he's going to break something. Yeah, guaranteed. Yeah, guaranteed. Um, they also had this was this was so cool. This was so cool. I did this one time. It was it was a lot of fun. They had a teeter totter, but it wasn't for sitting on. It was you would hold it with your hands. The the fulcrum in the middle was about I don't know seven eight feet in the air, and so you get somebody on the other end and you jump and uh, and it would and then when they went down it would fling you up and you gosh it felt it felt like you're about fifteen feet in the air. If you let go, you're going to go flying. Right. <laughs> but they had stuff like that, and every kid gets banged up and beat up, but their objective is not to create soft kids. I mean, they, they, you need to be tough. Yeah. You need to You think that tough. was effective? Yeah, I think it is. I think it is. And um, uh, I, I think we should duplicate some of that and not, we don't, the objective should be to develop children with enough internal fortitude and character that they can cope with and deal with an imperfect environment around them. Right. Rather than to recoil and, and, and be, you know, wounded because of a difficult environment. I do feel like we're at a point now where we're just ego boosting everybody you know everything it is. is okay it's, and yeah you see this especially with the victim i'm a victim of this and that it's like well guess what we're all victims to a degree and we all victimize to a degree mm-hmm. it's like well that's just life yeah it's just life. something you gotta push through and yeah you know and whatever what doesn't kill you make it stronger that's, yeah. that's as true as it comes and it's gonna shape you i think in a positive way you know yeah but i feel like what i'm I worked out with like my Navy, best friend over there is going to Navy SEALs. Oh, and cool! Wow. So I started working out with him, mm-hmm. and he was putting me some through some stuff I'd never even heard yeah. of. Yeah, and it was like I would die during these workouts and exercises. Yeah, and then all of a sudden I'd be better, and I'd be I just feel like my mind was in control yeah. of everything, you know. And that was like, okay, I need to go through pain to get stronger. Yes, that, that, that's where it starts is pain. Yeah. And that's on all level, emotional, physical, you know. Yeah. 
I think that is a huge importance. I, yeah, I absolutely agree. I, I, I think it's... It, the problem is we're trying to insulate everybody from anything that might ever cause them a lack of peace or, or cause stress in their life. It's like, well, well, if you have to go through life wearing a bubble wrap suit, well, that means you're really soft. Yeah, that's, what's the and point of that It's like, point? What, why? Yeah. And it's... Um, so yes, educationally it was it was good, but they also are they. It's like they strive to be uh, to train kids to be strong and tough and good, and um, so I, I commend them for that. That's just like in a natural way where you don't have to do anything. It's just kind of throw up a, a playground that's off yeah, the course, and kids yeah. are gonna love it anyways. Yeah, you know when I remember when I was a kid, you know, th- third to fourth grade, I asked my parents, I wanted my birthday party, I want an obstacle course. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's what I wanted, you know. Yeah. I wanted to walk on the pillar. If you fell off, you know, you're going to drop a couple of feet. And... and it's a more recent development. It's a more recent. I, when I was a kid, I remember have, my grandparents having a set of yard darts. You, you know what those are? They're like... Where you, where you had to throw them and... Yeah, they're, they're like massive darts that have a pointy metal thing. Right. And you throw it up in the air and, you know, we're trying to aim towards a circle so it would land in the circle. But it's little kids taking sharp metal objects... <laughs> throwing them up in the air over their head. I mean, I just can't. I mean, I Today can't. we think that's unfathomable. I, it's unfathomable. Like, <laughs> you would do what? <laughs> and they do make them nowadays too, where it's just like they're all plastic with the round bottoms and they have like a little they bit go, of sand in them or something. Do gonna, they have like a Nerf head on Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Everything's got to be a little bit yeah. softer nowadays. Yeah. I mean, maybe the yard dart thing is a bad <laughs> idea. I mean, I, granted. But give, that's give like, that. you know, that's that kind of explains of how it's, yeah. how it's went. You know, it's, it went from... You have to yeah. be safe on your own and learn on your own to a little bit softer and a little bit softer, and yeah. now everything's well. And part of that is a reaction over, well, probably not an overreaction, but it is a reaction to the fact that everybody can sue anybody for anything, and, you know, it's, it's, we're a very uh, litigious society, which is a real pain. I mean, vampire lawyers have destroyed a lot, um, but uh, it's, it's really to our detriment, and I think it's most so with boys, I, I, I really feel strongly that we need to encourage boys to embrace masculinity. Right. Now, you hear all the time, oh, that, you know, we don't want toxic masculinity. Toxic. You know, every time somebody says that, I want to say, well, number one, can you tell me what good masculinity is? <laughs> well, well, we haven't thought of that. And number two, would you agree with, I mean, if you're going to start with, there's such a thing as toxic masculinity, is there toxic femininity as well? Is that, is that a category or is that... Oh, no, no, we're just talking about boys. Right. <laughs> I, I think that masculinity needs to be ingrained in boys and masculinity specifically is... Masculinity in its most clear manifestation is when a man will provide for and protect. When you provide for those around you and you protect the vulnerable and the innocent, that is manhood. And we have just basically snuffed that out. We have, we have, you know, I want, I, and I, I, told my, I told my son this, listen, I want you to be an exceedingly virtuously violent individual so that at a moment's notice, you will use violence in the defense of the vulnerable. Mm-hmm. I was, I was on a train drive, or riding from Perm, Russia, down to Kharkiv, Ukraine, 
and there was this this grandmother she had a cart full of stuff and she was going up and down the aisles you know selling stuff and here's this guy he's probably i don't know mid-20s and he's you know he's drinking a beer and he's hanging out the window and he's kind of taking up the aisle and she can't get through and and he was right in front of my door so i'm sitting there with the kids and melinda and uh, he wouldn't uh, he wouldn't let her through and you know i, I hear him start to argue and and i it caught my attention. I said, you know, in Russian, well, what's going on here? And he said, well, she's big and fat. And I, you know, I'm in, I'm here. And I said, tell him, get out of the way. And uh, he's like, well, no, I'm not going to do it. So I, I, be, I grabbed her cart and I began to push it. And he kind of, kind of took up the aisle. And so I gave him a, a good solid shove in, in Jesus name. And <laughs> I was ready to go toe to toe with the guy. And it's not because I'm a, it's not because I like violence or I'm a violent person, but it's because at that critical moment, there was someone who was vulnerable, a grandmother, and she needed someone to step into the middle of that. Mm-hmm. And that's what manhood is. That's what manhood is. And it's not a, manhood's not a calculating, well, let's see, can this guy take me? Can I take him? It doesn't matter. It's about doing what's right. It's doing what's point. right. Yeah. Yes, and if it costs you, if it costs you your life, well, that's an honorable way to go. Yeah, you know. So that's that is the kind of thing we need to be teaching boys, but we don't. Boys are different than girls. They are unique and they're special, and we need to we need to not snuff out their masculinity. We need to encourage it. So. I think I think every boy should play with toy guns. Absolutely. <laughs> I know, sure as heck I did. I know. <laughs> you know, was... we had we had the, the Nerf guns at one point. Yeah. Uh, when I was about five, and then we moved on to the airsoft guns where we were shooting BBs at yeah. each other when we were about nine or ten. Yeah. And then we moved on to paintball guns, which yeah. <laughs> that'll teach you something real quick. Yeah, they leave a well, but it's, you know, it's, 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 it's awesome. Josiah would do that. He would have uh, uh, airsoft wars and come home and just, he looked like he had been attacked. Got a chicken pox or yeah, something. Yeah, it's like, my goodness, they're all over him. But, uh, but that's a good thing, and that's what, that's what boys need. They need that kind of, every boy is, I mean, boys are different than girls, period. I mean, you, if you think that gender is a social construct, then, then I don't know if you must be living in a cave or, <laughs> or off planet or whatnot, but you can just see there is this marked difference from boys and girls. Boys do dumb things habitually. You know, it's, it's just that is that, that crazy, you know, hey, let's go jump off that roof kind of mentality. That's the way boys are. It's because we are designed to be adventurers and explorers, we're, we're rough and tumble because we, you know, there's, it's just in us. It's just in us. And the biological makeup or something, uh, you know, yeah. there's, there's, you know, different chemicals in there. And... Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a design feature. And what we have to do is what we, we need to take a boy is a, is, a, is a human with appetites and inclinations, and that has to be channeled. It has to be channeled and trained to embrace virtue and to, and and honor, and honestly, the best, the most, the highest currency among men is respect. Right. And and every man wants to be respected by other men, and and by his wife and by by you know his mother and and, and people that he cares about. That's what we need to be instilling in boys. So. I agree. You know, um, respect is like. 
I was talking to a kid today because I, I sub as a pair at the school. Okay. And I'm like, you're, you're not going to do this anymore? Like, shake my hand. Mm-hmm. Like, tell me you're not going to do it on me. Like, this, like I'm going man to man with you. And he's a seventh grader. Mm-hmm. I'm like, dude, you're a man now. Shake my hand and tell me you're not going to do this anymore. Yeah. You know, that's, that's my way of saying, yeah. be honest with me. And if you're not going to be honest and you're, you're going to do it again, don't shake my hand. Yeah. You know, so this will, that'll tell me if I can trust you or not right there. Just yeah. a firm shake. <laughs> that's all I, I needed with him. Um, yeah. And they weren't, uh, or he wasn't used to that. I don't think, you know, yeah. cause he shook my hand and was like, you know, whatever. And I was, you know, I was being serious with him. Yeah. And, and, t- 30 minutes later, you know, obviously he's young and forgets. But I was like, dude, you just, you just lost my respect. You know, I can't, I, he did it again. And I was like, how am I supposed to trust you ever again? How am mm-hmm. I supposed to believe what you're saying is true? Mm-hmm. Every, that, that brings back all of your credibility to what you've said in the past. You know, mm-hmm. if you're willing to break a promise within an hour, why is anything else you've told me in your life true? Mm-hmm. And that's something that I've kind of, learned over the years Mm -hmm. um i think it was instilled but it's more of a conscious thought to me now yeah seeing the world kind of evolve in the way it has recently you know how quickly it's changed as well (laughs) yeah well you know you look at a guy like jordan peterson who is phenomenally popular and his message is be a responsible man get your act together and and it's like there's this hunger for it i mean men men desired honor and to be respected. And when somebody says, be responsible and do what you should do, and that is the way in which you will receive this respect, mm-hmm. it resonates. I mean, guys are like, yeah, huh, all right. I mean, there's... there's well, I think it's almost like guys are waiting for it to be like, okay. Like right yeah. now it's like up in the air. Like, is it okay? Is it not? And then yeah. when someone says it, it's like, oh, uh, you know, if I, you know, it's, you know, trains popularity that quickly. Yeah, which is which is cool. Yeah, uh, no, I, I I definitely think that uh, that public education is a system that's been designed primarily for girls in mind. Boys are not designed biologically or men- mentally to sit stationary for long periods of time. I have thought about this so much. Yeah. Um, I'm actually going into teaching. That's okay. that's my field, and math is my subject. Mm-hmm. So my my biggest thought is how do I get everybody engaged actively as well? Yeah. What am I going to do to keep kids' attention and draw them in? Mm-hmm. And I, my, like the thing I kept coming to over and over again was I had to get them up and moving yeah. or else they're going to you know, take a nap in my class. Yeah. yeah. And also use enthusiasm, you know, show yeah. passion in what I'm teaching. Yeah, uh, it's it's a challenging thing, but uh, you know. So, I learned English grammar by studying Greek. I didn't understand English grammar in high school. I mean, people tried to teach it to me, and they blah blah blah, subject verb, whatever. When I studied Greek, in order to understand Greek, I had to understand grammar, and when I understood that grammar, I would know how to translate into English from this other language. Mm. So I had to know Greek. I had to know English grammar as well. And it just, it's like suddenly I needed to know it, so I learned it. Whereas, you know, if you're trying to teach math to boys or teach them fractions or whatever, man, if you can pull out the tape measure and build something with them and, you know, if you can work in some power tools and whatnot, I mean, that is, 
that to me seems like the best way to teach things that would be boring if you put it on a chalkboard or a whiteboard, but if you are actually constructing something and building something and incorporating all the senses, I think it should be very much more successful. Don't think I'm writing anything. I'm just writing down <laughs> notes from my classroom right here. <laughs> actually, yeah. though, you know, I think you know, I'm I'm middle school, mm-hmm. so this is a real tough area where it's, yeah, it you're kind of you know shifting yeah. into manhood and 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 you know. Yeah. Women, women are pretty much on that path now, or most of them are yeah. gone through puberty at that point. Yeah. yeah, but still, there's so much going on, and if any little thing I can do will yeah. stick, and I'm just hoping to find my groove even before yeah. I get in there by yeah. just talking to people. Yeah, I'm not. I'm. I might be speaking beyond my intelligence, which is something I habitually do, but. Uh, <laughs> um, in the younger years, especially in the subject in the arena of math. In the younger years, if you can focus on rote memory, I mean, if kids can memorize their times tables, and when I was in fifth grade, I remember we had to stand up and we had to recite our, our times tables aloud in unison, which was boring and blah, blah, but, but we do that. But even today, now I can, I can, you know, 12 times one is 12, 12 times two is 24, 12 times three is 36, and I can work my way through these. When, when you're young and you focus on rote memory, then when you get into junior high and high school, you don't have to scratch your head and wonder that. You've already got those tools in your brain. Yeah. And then you can begin to sp- think more abstractly. Uh, so, I mean, that's just my two cents on math. Yeah, and, and from one, my understanding of the teachers that I've talked to, it's been really tough since COVID. Oh, yeah. Since, you know, it was... And parents weren't even forcing their kids to, to do the online no. stuff. Oh, so yeah. nobody really retained anything. So yeah. they're still going up two grades, but they went down a grade in yeah. their math. And math is not something that's just like, I can teach this, I can teach this. It's like stack, mm-hmm. stack, stack, yes. stack. You have to know all the steps <laughs> yeah. leading up to it to be able to, yeah. which is just uh, detrimental to the United yeah. States. Is, you know. I have very strong feelings about COVID and how it was used as a, as a means of manipulation and destruction of just all kinds of stuff. I'm, I have very strong feelings. I'm about sure that. we could go down about a 24-hour podcast yeah, on probably, that Probably, <laughs> yes, no doubt. No doubt. But, but wrapping it back in. So okay. um, after Russia, where would we? So after Russia, did three years there. Um, and then we came back to Washington State. Uh, and then I, I, for about a year, I just did contracting again. Uh, and then we went on the trip, came down to Long Beach, uh, saw the church, did the resume, uh, got hired on as the pastor of First Baptist Church. So been there since uh, 2011. One of the um, questions, because I, I, I listen to a lot of podcasts as well, mm-hmm. and one of um, that I listened to talked about this, and I was curious what you thought. Um, how has being a pastor evolved over the years, and how has Christianity in general changed? Christianity in general... Uh, well, the biggest thing that Christianity is facing right now is that we're living in a post-Christian society. Um, we, for the most part, people used to operate on the assumption of a Christian worldview and Christian morality. Uh, that is no longer the case. Uh, so, you know, maybe back 40, 50 years ago, you could, uh, you could, uh, you know, 
tell a guy, you know, repent. You can't be sleeping around like a tomcat because that's wrong and God doesn't like that. And and he kind of already knew that, yeah, that's not the right type of... Right. And so you, now we live in a different era where it's like, well, no. I mean, the popular notion being taught is uh, in the arena of morality is that all morality is relative. All morality is relative. And I've, I've actually had discussions with people who were several decades younger than me uh, and I and I'd ask him, you know, what I mean, if, if all morality is relative, uh, just a scenario, would you would you ever feel comfortable hopping on an airplane and traveling over to some other country and where they're selling women as sex slaves and say, you know what, you shouldn't do that. That's wrong. Because if you think that all morality is relative, you've just disqualified yourself from saying any kind of a value judgment about somebody who's engaged in a horrible a horrible sin against humanity. Right. You know, if if that's if there's no right and wrong, on what basis can you tell someone else to do what is right? Right. How can you make laws or yeah. anything like that? Yeah. yeah. So that is something we're we're wrestling with right now uh, as Christians. Um, I mean, a lot of people there is a there's a pervasive negative view of Christianity. So back, um, say in the seventies, Little House on the Prairie. You had Reverend Alland, and he was a good guy. He was looked at as a pillar in the community and just a all-around good guy. Nowadays, if Hollywood or uh, you know social media presents anything about Christianity, it's hater, bigot, homophobe, ignorant, uh, kill kill brown people that kind. Of, and so you've got that right out of the gate. If I say to somebody, "I'm a I'm a Baptist pastor," like, "Oh, you're one of the haters." So there is that natural, I've already begun with, I, I know that you have that view of me. Right. So that is a, that is a real I, challenge I, for I really, I really hate to hear that because I, I hate um, generalization. Mm -hmm. So just because you associate with something does not make you like everybody else. You mm -hmm. know, we all have our unique qualities and everybody is mm -hmm. their own person, I think. Yeah. You know, it. I'm Logan. I'm not, mm -hmm. you know, I'm not just a Christian, but I'm also Logan. Yeah. You know, I I do my own thing. Uh, I act how I act, mm -hmm. and hopefully follow God in, in, the, in the process. Yeah. The difficulty I think that we face is often is that we can't distinguish between individuals and and movements. Excellent. Yes. Um, that, yeah. I have. I, I mean, I I have very strong opinions on a whole variety of things, but my opinions are about different ideologies and different belief systems, not about individuals within that. So, you know, you can, you can have an opinion on what is morally good and right and just, and yet it's not that I hate anybody. I might disagree with them, but that, but that doesn't, disagreement doesn't constitute hate. It, it, it represents a different perspective on a matter, which in a more civilized era, we could talk about, and we could have a mature conversation and say, well, right. tell me, tell me why you think like that. And, you know, and go back and forth. Yeah. Um, unfortunately now we, we just seem to have lost the ability to even have a conversation with someone who we disagree with. Yeah. And I, so. and I hope that comes back and yeah, I don't know how, <laughs> hopefully we're in the process, uh, you know, making podcasts and just having conversations. And yeah, I encourage people, even if you disagree, go, go ahead and say it. And if you want to have a conversation and say your side, 
I'll have you right on the show. Yeah. You know? And that's healthy. If you can, and if you have a person who can say, well, this is what I believe and this is why I believe it without saying, this is what I believe and you're a jerk and you're an idiot and I hate you, but this is what I believe. If you can, you can, you can get beyond that, you know, okay, let's not call each other names. Let's just put that aside and just have a discussion. I mean, that's, when you embrace civility again, then yeah, I think you can, you can improve. Every Sunday I go to church and, you know, when I preach, I pretty much, it's a, I have a prepared message and whatnot. So I'm not really doing a give and take, but I have a, like a Sunday school hour with it, with adults. And every Sunday I walk out of there and I've listened to what people have said. And, you know, maybe they didn't change my mind about something profound, but it's like, you know, there's another nuance to this. So it's a give and take. When I talk to people and sometimes have disagreements, it's like, you know, if I, if I listen and I focus on what they're saying, I might walk away with just a slightly different perspective, not changing my whole worldview or anything like that, but just to see things from a slightly different perspective. So that's and important. I, I talked to someone else who was, um, she was talking about, so if you have these ideas and you're not mm-hmm. willing to accept any other opinions or listen to anybody mm-hmm. else, you're not a, open to change at all for the rest of your life. Like, is that what you, is that mm-hmm. is that what you're saying? And like, yeah. you, you're never willing to hear anybody unless they agree with you. Yeah, but that's that's kind of a very closed off minded way to think. It is. It is. Which I, is, I've never been uh, part of somebody's uh, political campaign, but I've always thought to myself, I could talk to a politician and say, hey, you know what? In the process of an interview sometime along the line, if somebody says, well, you said this before and you said this, if they would just come out and say, you know what? Yeah, that was kind of stupid. Yeah, like, I, I think I've they changed would have since huge then. credibility. It's like everybody says stupid things. And then it, and then it starts the notion that is, it is okay to say that. Yeah, you know? it's okay to, yeah, I was wrong. Or, you know what, I didn't think about it. Or I'm just shooting off my mouth. And, I mean... You know how many situations you could you could deflate and diffuse if you just said, you know what? Yeah, I was kind of just I'm just shooting off my mouth. I wasn't thinking about it. And, yeah, yeah, it's it's a powerful thing. I, yeah, I think that's you know, that's a great message. I'm yeah, <laughs> glad we were able to talk about that. Yeah. Um, next question I have is, um, if you could say one thing to someone who doesn't believe in Christ, what would it mm-hmm. be? Well, I would. Let's see. I would just invite anybody who is who's a skeptic. Excellent. Skepticism is welcome. I think that every belief system should be analyzed with a skeptical perspective. And I would just invite anybody to do the same thing with Christianity. And, and look at look it over. I mean it just try it out a little try, bit. Yeah, yeah, just try it out, study it, listen to what it's saying, and understand that, I mean, we, people have a dichotomy that there is, there's faith and there's reason, you know, and the two don't travel hand in hand. I mean, that's ridiculous. If my faith is not built on reason and I don't have good reason to embrace my faith, then no, no, I, I, I don't want to be part of some mushroom cult. Absolutely not. I... I have faith. First of all, I believe in the Bible. I believe that it is, it is human words that it's God's revelation in human words and is written for us and for our benefit. But it also coheres very well scientifically. It also coheres very well archaeologically and historically. 
I mean, you can go to, I mean, hop on a plane, fly to Israel, and according to our best archaeological evidence, we can identify the garden tomb where Jesus was actually buried. I mean, it's, it's right there. You, you can travel to Caesarea Philippi, and there, there you'll find a, an inscription of when Pontius Pilate was, you know, procurator. In, in, so our faith is built upon history. It's not built upon, you know, some fanciful philosophy. Uh, our faith is very open. I mean, the, the best arguments for believing in God, the, the, there are the cosmological, the teleological arguments. I mean, these are the, the moral argument. These are arguments that people philosophically sat down and thought about. And, you know, if there was a God, how would we know? I mean, there's, there is ample reasonable evidence to embrace faith. And the second thing I'd say is anybody was a skeptic about, about Christianity is like, you got to understand that you operate on faith as well. Every single human being operates on faith. In, in what way? We believe things that there is no way we can verify. Like? Abraham Lincoln, was he the president of the United States during the Civil War? <laughs> how do you know? <laughs> well, somebody wrote a book about it. Well, really? How do you know they didn't lie? Right. <laughs> Have you ever seen him? Did you ever touch him? Did you ever talk with him? You know, how can you verify anything? And so there's a huge amount of things that we embrace by faith, and it just, you know, things in the past with history. I mean, even the modern, I mean, we embrace things about, about things. I mean, the lights, the lights are on in this room. How does electricity work? Do we really know? Have you ever, I mean, have you ever gotten out an electron microscope and watched the flow of electrons, <laughs> you know, going through but, copper? I mean, I, there's just a ton of things that we accept. We don't fully understand how they work, but we accept they, they do work. Yeah. So everybody lives on faith. The question is, is it, is it a reasonable faith? And so I think that, I think Christianity offers not only a valid reason for believing in it, I mean, as the resurrection of Jesus, if that was just some made-up thing, number one, um, why would they do that? Why would anybody want to follow a, a, a dead Messiah? Number two, if those people who wrote the New Testament didn't actually think that Jesus rose from the grave and he, they actually saw him interact with him, why would you die for it? There are scores of and not just the, the apostles who knew Jesus and saw him resurrected, who died for their faith, but there are many people in the New Testament era that, that they believed the witness that was handed down to them from the apostles and ultimately paid for it with their lives. Now that is, that's powerful and it deserves a second look. Um... Number one, if, if, somebody, if, you, if somebody finds something that they're willing to give their life for, it's worth, I mean, especially if you're, you're wrestling with the, what is the meaning of life, why yeah. am I here, and, you, and somebody has, you know, says, I found the meaning of life and I'll die for it, hmm, that, that deserves a second look. Right. Um, so I don't know if I'm on first, second, or third, but uh, those are some of the reasons why I would say yes. Consider Christianity. Consider it. I mean, and analyze the other religions that are available. The, the unique thing about Christianity, everybody pretty much understands there's a God and there are humans and there's a chasm between the two. 
And it has to do something with we have behaved in such a way that, that God doesn't appreciate and it's not. So every religious system has some sort of a mechanism for making propitiation, to, to, to make peace with the deity. Whether it's throw a virgin in a volcano or, or offer you know, a, a, a food sacrifices or go on a pilgrimage or, or do something. We've got to placate the divine. Most uh, recommendations are going to be based upon you do this, X, Y, Z, and they'll give you a formula. What the God of the Bible and Christianity suggests is that the opposite. Yes, there is that alienation. However, all the heavy lifting uh, was done by God in giving a son mm -hmm. so as to redeem people who didn't really care for him, honestly. <laughs> And uh, he did that to redeem them, not simply to, to make it so that, all right, I'm not going to send you to hell or I'm not going to vaporize you, but I've given my son to redeem you so that you can be actually my son or daughter, to be a son or daughter of the right. king. I mean, that is, that's truly a unique message. And you're not going to find that in other sources. Yeah, it seems like a very accepting message to me. Like he, he wants you to be part of his family. And you know what's funny in the early uh, in the early church in the Roman Empire, there were a ton of slaves. There was a it was a very stratified society. You had very wealthy and intermediate. You had just a ton of slaves. In the church, that was a that was an arena where it didn't really matter what your social class was outside, but when you come inside the church, everyone is equal equal. Um, people have said that, you know, the Bible encourages slavery. Well, actually, it doesn't really encourage it, but it, it gives a different mechanism for how to deal with it. In the New Testament, the writers said, listen, masters, you who have slaves, you need to remember that you're a slave as well, and that this person that is working for you as either an indentured servant or a slave, they are a brother. And, and conversely, to, to the people who are slaves, the New Testament writer said, hey, do the very best job you can because, because you are serving not some earthly master, but in your work and labor, you are actually, you need to do it unto the Lord. And that kind of mentality that permeated the church between masters and slaves, recognizing their humanity of both, it really was the mechanism in Western civilization to end slavery. Mm, yeah, I never, Wow. This is, we're connecting, connecting a lot of dots for me right here. Yeah. Well, yeah. look at the abolition movement. The abolition movement. Uh, in England, the empire in which you know, the sun never set, slavery was eliminated. Who did it? Who was the driving force? It was the abolitionists. The abolitionists were Christians. Huh. Uh, uh, um, oh, my goodness, I can't remember his name right now. Uh, it starts with a W. Oh. Um, I'll come to it in a minute, but guys like um, uh, Granville Sharp, who was a Greek scholar, New Testament Greek scholar, he was part of the abolitionist movement. Um, I know anybody who's listening out there is going to know the name of this one, um, this one famous, he was a politician, and he went into public office simply because he wanted to abolish slavery. And he was successful. It was Devout evangelical Christians who said, you know what, slavery is an abomination, specifically the race-based slavery, 
that was prevalent in, in the Empire of England, this is an abomination. Um, and they, they got engaged in politics and through their efforts ended up eliminating slavery. The Republican Party, by the way, the Republican Party wasn't about, abolition was one of their main uh, planks of their party, that they, the Northern Republicans, were an abolitionist movement. And that's why, you know, when you study the Civil War, the election of Abraham Lincoln was, was just, uh, you know, the, that Republican, uh, that's what brought about the, the Civil War. Right. So. So um, I'm not sure how we got onto Christianity and slavery, but um, uh, as a rabbit trail. But but, anyways, um, it has a profound effect. The New Testament and Western civilization is built upon the Bible, and all of the good and wonderful things that you find that Western civilization has advanced really has the Bible as its foundation. So, so if, if someone was going to pick up a Bible today and was like, I need to, you know. I want to read this. I want to learn about it. Where, where, yeah. do, you, where do we start here? Because I'm, I'm new to this, you know, yeah. personally. I, it's only been a couple months, and so, I just hopped in and started reading Matthew. So yeah, I, I didn't, Matthew's I didn't a know. Good, good place to start. Now, you have four different Gospels, and the four different Gospels all have, I mean, they're recording similar, I mean, everything similar material, but they, each of them have a different kind of uh, uh, perspective on it. It's kind of like holding up a precious jewel. When you look at a precious jewel, you don't just look at one side, you kind of spin it around and look at it. Mm -hmm. And all of the Gospels are written with a different, uh, unique thrust. Now, Matthew's Gospel, which is very Jewish-oriented, is uh, it focuses on Jesus as the King of the Jews. He is the, he is the Son of David. Uh, and to understand the significance of that, you got to go back to the Old Testament and understand David and his promise that was the promise that was given to him by God that he would have a son who would rule forever. Um, uh, Mark Mark presents Jesus as a man of action. This, I mean, Jesus is almost running throughout the whole gospel. He did this, and immediately he did that, and he's jumping all over the place, and he does amazing things. And, and Mark has this really cool way of weaving stories together uh, and making a unique point. Uh, Luke is focused very much on that Jesus is the Savior of all humanity. Luke, as a Gentile, uh, had a unique take on this that, wow, this is a Jewish Messiah that's for me as well as a Gentile, you know, uh, so, and then John's gospel is focused on the, on the divinity of Jesus, that he is not just, not just a good teacher, but he is the son of God and he is God himself, uh, has that quality. So the gospel is a good place to start. I'd also recommend, I'd probably recommend somebody do Old Testament and New Testament, somewhat simultaneously. Okay. Genesis is a great place. I thought about this a lot. <laughs> yeah. Genesis is a great place to start, um, as well as, you know, the Gospels. Genesis will give you the backstory. I mean, the critical things. The whole rest of the Bible is a response to what takes place in Genesis. You've got the fall. You've got the flood. You've got the Tower of Babel. And you've got the call of Abraham. And Abraham, I mean, the whole Bible, the whole Bible is one big story arc. Um, Adam and Eve get kicked out of the garden. They are excluded from access to the tree of life. They, they can't even come in the garden anymore. There's, you know, guards set up basically, so they can't have access. Then, uh, but, but in the whole process of this, you know, screw up, God says to the woman that, you know, yeah, you were duped by the serpent or the, or the, this, this angel, this fallen angel, but through you, the woman, 
I'm going to bring about a son who would destroy everything that the serpent has done. This promised son. And uh, while they're outside of Eden, uh, you know, things, things go sideways in a big way, in a hurry. You've got the flood. You've got the power of Babel. And then God picks out a man, Abraham, and says, through you, through you, you're going to be the one that I'm going to bless you and I'm going to bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you and I'm going to give you a land and you're going to have a seed and you're going to be blessed. And that whole saga of Abraham and his wife, Sarah, I mean, God has a funny style the way he does stuff. He waits till Abraham is, you know, 99 years old before he has his son. He thinks he's an old raisin and there ain't nothing fruitful coming from him anymore. But uh, God, just this, just his style brings him a son when he's an old, old man. It was a way of showing that, wow, this was something that God only could do. Right. And then through Isaac, you have the, you know, Isaac and Jacob, and you have the birth of the Jewish people and the promises made to the Jewish people, bringing them into the, to the promised land. And, and, you know, they're in the promised land and they, they end up developing a monarchy. And David is the chosen king. There's actually a civil war. The, it splits into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And about uh, 722 BC, the, the Assyrian Empire comes and just deports the entirety of the northern uh, nation of Israel. And then in 586, Nebuchadnezzar comes and basically deports the entirety of the southern kingdom. And you know, and it's and there are numerous prophets that say the reason why this is happening is because God made a covenant with us. He spelled it out. He said, you do this and you'll be blessed. You do this and you'll be cursed. And the ultimate manifestation of the curse is that you're going to be banished from your land. And all these prophets kept saying that this is what's going to happen. This is what's going to happen. You guys, you need to repent. Repent of what you're doing. Get back to the covenant. Obey God. And they didn't. But they always looked forward to say there will come a day when God will fulfill the promise that he made to David, that he made to Abraham, that he made to Eve in the garden. And when you come to the New Testament and Jesus comes on the scene, he is the fulfillment of everything that everybody is looking forward to. This is the son mm-hmm. who will bring us back into the garden. And when you come to the very last part of the Bible, the book of Revelation, the very last part of the book of Revelation, there you see a new Jerusalem. And guess what's in the new Jerusalem? The tree of life. The tree of life. That's what we wanted access, needed access to in the garden. Right. And God has brought us full circle and he full, brings us yeah. back in. So, so yeah, I mean, I would start in the Gospels. I would, I would look at especially the historical books of Genesis and Exodus, um, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. These are laws. I mean, this is part of the Mosaic Covenant. You know, God said, you're going to be my people. You're going to act like my people. No, do this and don't do this. Uh, then you get into to, uh, the Judges and uh, into First and Second Samuels and First and Second Kings, and it gives you the history of the nation of Israel up into the deportation. So, I mean, it's good, to, it's good to be familiar with that, the history. That'll give you the backbone for which everything on the New Testament, oh, okay, it, it, right. it's built on that. Yeah. So, but, yeah. Okay, here comes a big question. Sure. Um, so I've heard about the sign outside the church. Oh, which one? Um, 
the oh, one. You mean, you mean, you mean the, the actual sign of the, the different messages? That yeah, the different there? messages yep. that come. I don't know if that's weekly or I, I've never well, actually seen I, it. But. Yeah, I usually change it weekly, about weekly. Yeah. So what's the purpose and what's the message that you want to send with it? It kind of depends on the particular week and the particular, I mean, the messages are, are, are varied. So um, number one, I, I want to present, present messages that are sometimes provocative because I want people to think about it really, you know, I want to, I want to arouse a reaction. Um, I also why, want, why, why do you want to arouse a reaction? Well, people don't think unless they're aroused. I mean, do you think that'll make people shut down almost, or some get will, on defense? Yes. Some will, yes. But uh, let's say, so I'll give you two examples. Probably the one that I got a lot of reaction, which was kind of surprising. Uh, I think I said the trans movement is spiritual uh, darkness. Now, which is a statement that probably ten years ago everybody would have said, "Well, yeah, geez, the idea of." The idea of sterilizing kids and getting them on the cross-sex hormones and ultimately amputating parts off of their body, yeah, that is, that's barbaric. That's, mm-hmm. that's abusive. So 10 years ago, everybody would have been like, well, yeah, duh. Um, but now it's, I don't know, things have changed in the culture and uh, it's, it's remarkable. Uh, so that created quite a stir. Uh, but there's other times where I said that uh, uh, Jesus, the resurrection proves that Jesus is Lord of all. Now, if somebody really understands what that is saying, mm-hmm. that's far more provocative. Because the claim of the Bible and the claim of the New Testament, when Jesus was resurrected, he said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Uh Basically, the message of the New Testament is that Jesus is not just Savior, but he's Lord. And Lord is a word that refers to uh, sovereignty and authority. And so that message that Jesus is Lord is not simply saying that, okay, my sexual life, all right, that's your, okay, God, you, you've got authority there. No, when you say he is Lord of all, you're saying he is authority over my sexual life, over my financial life, over my recreational life, over my relationships. Wait a minute. He is Lord. It's like if you invite him into your house, he says that every room in your, every room and every cabinet in your house, I have full access to. And I have full access to open the doors and look inside and say, these things please me and these things do not please me. Now that is... I mean, that is really, um, I mean, that's more controversial than simply saying that the trans movement is spiritual darkness. Right. So Jesus said that the way to the kingdom is like a narrow path. It's small, and not many people find it. Now, the way that leads to destruction is broad. It's like a superhighway, and that's where most people go. And... My thrust and desire is not that, number one, I don't think I am better than anybody out, anybody outside the church. I mean, I've shared in this podcast my background. Yeah. I mean, I was a bratty, awful, terrible kid. And even now today, I'm kind of, I'm kind of, you know, sometimes obnoxious and rude and, you know, I kick my dog. Well, not 
not too hard, but, uh, you know, I'm just a guy. I have all the vices every other guy has. So I, number one, don't think I'm any better. I think I'm a guy that needs God's grace and mercy because God sees everything and he, he has strong opinions on everything. Uh, if you think that someday you could stand before God and say, well, listen, I wasn't a bad guy. I wasn't that bad. I mean, he has every single thing you have ever said and every thought you've ever had, he has it perfectly memorized. You are not going to be able to play the card that I'm innocent or I'm a good guy. He knows us too well. Yeah. Therefore, we all need to, A, repent and say, God, you're right. I have screwed up a lot and I've done many things very bad. And you're right and I'm wrong. Will you please forgive me? Will you give me grace and mercy? Um, at the beginning of Pride Month, I put up there, repent of pride, turn to Jesus, and you will be saved. And in place of pride, I could put, turn from alcoholism, turn from gossip, turn from whatever. Uh, all of these things are sin. All these things. I mean, some people say, why focus on, on the pride movement and LGBT movement and not say, talk about gluttony? Well, because nobody walks around with a, with a flag, a gluttony flag, and, you know, say, yes, be gluttonous. I think that the message has got to be, and it's got to be clear, is that Jesus calls us to repent of everything that he says is wrong. And when you repent and you acknowledge what he says is true about morality, about sexuality, about everything, and you beseech him for his forgiveness, he will extend it. Everybody. But if somebody says, no, this is not wrong, this is fine, this is good, this is okay, that until you are willing to acknowledge something is wrong, you can never ask for forgiveness up for it. Right. Yeah. And that's what we all need. We all need forgiveness. But if you are advocating a movement that says, no, this is not wrong, it's right, even though God has clearly said it's wrong, then you have locked the door on ever seeking forgiveness. You know, you're just not going to do it. So, yeah. My only thought is, um, I get what you're doing, and mm -hmm. I just think there might be a better way of portraying that message, and I just feel like people... I'm just going to shut down. Like, I don't, I don't see the, the route to the end mm -hmm. goal of getting people to think. Mm -hmm. Maybe, I don't know if it's maybe just ask a question on there or, well, I was trying to, I've been trying to think about yeah, this, no, yeah, you know, no. I, what I was going to, what else, how I was going to, how I'd fix this or, uh, not fix, but, uh, different methodology. Different methodology. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. No, I'm always open to suggestions. I legit, logistically, there's only so many letters you can put up. So I've, I, it is a, a constant battle. Like, how can I put a message up there with using, you know, seven words? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> a stretch. Uh, however, I would say that sometimes it does lead to really fruitful conversations. I was out there changing it recently, and some lady walked by, and she said, oh, what are you putting up there? And, I, and it was, actually, I don't remember what I put up there. Uh, but it, and I put up there, so that's a nice one. Sometimes they're so hateful. So I asked her, oh, really, tell me, which, which ones are hateful? I mean, do you have an idea? Well, she didn't really, she didn't really know. And I, I said, well, there are certain things I hate. You're right. I, I told her I hate child abuse. It, it, I hate it and I despise it. And is it okay to hate those things? Now, she was a teacher and she said, well, yes, I hate it too. And so 
I, I asked her, well, do you think that amputating parts of your body, you know, of children and minors, do you think that's maybe child abuse? Do you think it's abusive? Uh, and she yeah, hemmed and hawed and... Um, I, I basically told her that, you know, there, there are things taking place in the world that I find very offensive, very wrong. And if I, and I, and I asked her, if, if you were a church and you were in Nazi Germany and they're, they're carting off the Jews into cars and eventually into ovens, if a pastor would have put a sign out and said, burning Jews is spiritual darkness or evil or it's, it's great wickedness, would we look back now and say, God, that, that pastor was really provocative. Right. I mean, he could have found a better way to... Maybe he, maybe he put that sign out there and said, you know, burning Jews is, is wicked and evil, and maybe he alienated some of his neighbors, maybe. Well, the, one of the main, you know, mm -hmm. when, I, when I heard about this is I wanted people to understand who you are mm -hmm. and yeah. not just be like, oh, oh, I hate this oh, guy. Oh, I hate her guy. Oh, yeah, this guy. <laughs> I'm like, no, yeah. I understand, you know, where he's coming from and how he thinks. And he's just a guy like you and me, you know. Yeah. And if you disagree, go up and have a civil conversation with him. Mm -hmm. I would guarantee you that anybody who is, who is outraged by some of the things I say, they have the same tendency. Um, you know, I, I know, other, you know, everybody is welcome here. Let, let's just play the scenario. Let, it, churches say, you know, everybody is welcome here. Everybody, come on in. If a parishioner came in with a shirt, a neo-Nazi who was wearing a swastika on his shirt, do you think anybody would say anything like, you know, hey, you know what? He's just a white supremacist. He's a neo-Nazi. But that's, you know, it's, but you're welcome here. Come on in. Or would somebody say, you know, that's pretty offensive. That's offensive, and it represents an ideology that we're just not going to tolerate here because that's that's a wickedness. That's that's evil. I think everyone out there would say, "Yeah, we don't want we don't want neo Nazis spreading their message. We you know we want to shut them down." Right now, we have a real debate in the in the culture over hate speech laws. You know, you know, platforms that will shut you down yeah. because you say the wrong thing. This, this is why I'm on Spotify because yeah. they're, they're the only ones that have complete free of yeah. whatever you can say. <laughs> yeah. So, so that movement says that there are some things that need to be stopped right out because they have the same kind of moral outrage. Well, okay, maybe you are, have outrage over different things than I do, but you still have moral outrage. Mm -hmm. I mean, I have moral outrage over, over you know, the trans movement and what's happening to children. It, it just infuriates me. It, it's, just, it's, it's an abomination. The people who would say that I'm a bigot and a hater of homophobe, they feel the same way. It's just a different topic. I mean, nobody's going to be out there uh, saying, you know what, uh, we, embrace, we embrace everybody, white supremacists included. No, they're not going to say that because they have the same kind of animus towards that movement of white supremacy that I have against, uh, against the trans movement. Mm -hmm. So, I don't know. <laughs> And actually, probably only about, I would say, one-third of my messages are provocative. Okay. I mean, a lot of them are, um, why, they're, they're very, I mean, actually, this week, it's congratulations to the graduates. You know, so I'm just, yeah. uh, I had up there, when, when the BLM riots were taking place, I put up there that uh, we support our local police. You know, I, get, I don't know if that was provocative. Probably, maybe it was provocative, but um, a lot of times, it's just a message of, 
of repent and believe, but the message of the New Testament that Jesus is Lord of everything is a very dividing message. It's, it's, um, there were people that came up to Jesus and said, you know, hey, what do I need to do? What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And, you know, there's one guy, he said, well, let's see. How are you doing with the commandments? Have you obeyed them? He said, oh, yes, my, I'm stellar. I've done very good. And all these things. So okay, good. I got one more thing for you to do. And this guy was wealthy. He said, go give away all your wealth and come follow me. Now, it's not because Jesus has a problem with wealthy people. Yeah. But he knew that this man, he had an idol in his heart, and it was his wealth. And, and he said, the man walked away, and, you know, and he walked away from salvation. He walked away from Jesus because Jesus does not share space. He can't be, you know, he's my 75% of the time Lord and, you know, other 25% of the time that's mine and whatever. No, he, he doesn't share space. Right. And, and the, the message of Christianity is to come fall upon your knees before him. He will extend forgiveness. But then he says, we're going to start changing some things. I'm going to make you into one of my disciples. I'm, you're not going to be a fisherman anymore. I'm going to give you a whole new identity and a whole new vocation, and I'm going to change you. You're going to be new. You're going to be like me. And that includes him extending his jurisdiction to every part of life. Every part of life. I mean, my screen time. Uh, it means my finances, all of it. So, I mean, if anybody was considering Christianity and they're like, well, you know, I can maybe, I can maybe give it. If you thought, if, if anyone thinks that being a follower of Jesus means that I just say these magical words or some sort of incantation and I will, you know, escape hell. No. Christianity is an invitation to come and make Jesus your Lord and to follow him. Come and follow me. He told his disciples, and he still tells that to us today, come and follow me. And it's a painful journey sometimes. Yeah. You know, I, I, like we said earlier, I said, I think pain is a good thing. Yeah. It's a great way to learn. It's, it's a transformative agent. Ace. Amen yeah. to that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. I have one final question for sure. you. Um, if there is one message that you hope you left with your children, mm. what would it be? Hmm, I guess with my children, it would be similar to what I would hope my legacy would be, is number one, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Obey Him and follow Him and trust Him. It's a hard thing to do, but it is the best thing to do. And secondly, as you interact with people, always be a person of conviction. Know what you believe. Don't hide from what you believe. And, and be true to your beliefs. I mean, be, be, be true to what is real. Uh, that would be my admonition I would give them. So um, don't, worry about, don't worry about 401Ks. Don't worry about retirements. Don't yeah. worry about second homes. I mean, all that stuff is... Don't worry about doing the right thing. Oh, yeah. man. Yeah. Everything that you own in this life will someday be part of a yard sale and then will eventually <laughs> be part of a landfill. Yeah. So. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well... This is a great conversation. Yeah, I enjoyed um, it. Let people know um, where yeah, they can find you, your contracting business, if they want to get a hold of you. Uh, basically, uh, yeah, I've got I've got uh, cards at Buds. I uh, um, uh, a lot of people know me. Um, yeah, so I 
actually, I'm, I usually have too much work. Not, <laughs> that's not the problem, advertising. So uh, now when you put puts it on Spotify, you'll go ahead and send me a link and whatnot because I'd yeah. like to share that with some other people. Yeah, well, absolutely. So, so I, yeah. yeah. I really enjoyed the time. It's a good uh, conversation. Yeah. So. yeah, I had an awesome time. I learned a lot. I went through listening to this one a few times. Oh, well, yeah. I, I hope I didn't talk too fast. Yeah. So. Well, thank you. Yeah, thank you.